So welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute for Historical Research. This week we're continuing the series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with Dr Mel Bassett. Hi Mel. Hello. Dr Melanie Bassett is a Faculty Research Fellow at the University of Portsmouth where she manages the PTUC website and social media outputs alongside undertaking her own research on port towns. Her PhD research, the Royal Dockyard Worker in Edwardian England, Culture, Leisure and Empire, re-examined the concept of a monolithic imperial identity and tracked the nuances of working class imperialism in the Edwardian period. When Mel gave her paper at the seminar in June 2018, she was talking about sport and the workers in the Royal Dockyard here in Portsmouth between 1890 and 1918. So Mel, can you tell us some more about the paper you gave at the IHR for those unfamiliar with the dock? What was distinctive about it as a workplace? Yeah, so the paper itself was called Fighting Fit, Sport in the Royal Dockyard. And what I wanted to explore was the um, disparity between leisure provisions for the Royal Navy and for the Royal Dockyard workers themselves, because um, there's this concept of uh, docile bodies and the control of military men and then being uh, at a certain level of physical fitness to be able to perform their job, especially in the Navy where you get to a point where the age of sail is gone. So they're not physically as, uh, you know, it's not as physically a demanding job. Okay, so there's yeah. lots of... There's a lot of mechanisation, for example. Yes. So things that they used to do aloft and at sail are not being... Uh, they're not performing those tasks anymore. Um, so there started to be a, a turn for the Navy about providing a good sport and physical training for for the Navy personnel and for the, you know, the Jolly Jack Tars. Um, but the Admiralty also employed dockyard workers that built the Royal Navy ships, but they didn't have the same leisure provisions. They weren't rolled out or given to the dockyard workers. Um, okay. And what I found in my research was that dockyard workers were seen to be, because they already did a physical job, they weren't, it wasn't seen as necessary perhaps, and they weren't seen in the same way as as Navy personnel because they didn't control their, their every life. So they were civilians, they went home, they had families, yeah. they had other activities that they could do and access to leisure provisions in so, the town. So the Royal Navy administrators saw them as a different category of employees yes, to, the, yeah. to the sailors yeah, and th they didn't ha feel like they needed to intervene so much in their kind of non-working life? Or? Exactly and, and what, I, what was bearing out in my research was the fact that the dockyard workers did want some of those provisions and they would petition to the Admiralty to say you know can we have access to a, a football pitch or yeah. you know can we have access to uh, you know a, a room that we can do amateur dramatics in and so they wanted these things from the Admiralty because they could see that other employees were getting these things yeah and it, it became part of their sort of a culture associational culture that they built up that was sort of projecting how they felt about themselves and how they wanted to represent themselves in yeah. society because also in other civilian uh employers, those kind of institutions were being given to the workers in a kind of a paternalistic way, weren't they? Exactly, and that's one of the things that I say, you know, it was like they they were treated like industrial workers, but it was out without the paternalism, yeah. you know, they would 
they would often have patrons that were sort of higher ups in the dockyard that were sort of um, naval captains and, and people like that, the, the dockyard superintendent. But I think it wasn't something that they said, oh, this will be good for the men, we'll do it. It was they would apply to uh, the superintendent of the dockyard, yeah. the Admiral Superintendent, and say, would you sponsor this and would you... you know. It wasn't a systematic thing, it was more just done ad hoc. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Because if you walk around Portsmouth, I mean, we're in Portsmouth today, <laughs> I was here for the weekend, um, you can see the sport and leisure infrastructure for the Royal Navy, can't you? You can't miss the sports pitches yeah. um, when you we're, come, come we're, in on the train. We're yards away from the um, the sports grounds for the... Um, for the Royal Navy? Uh, yeah, is for the Royal Navy Road, is it? Yes, the name of so, the sports yeah, so yeah. straight across the road from my yeah. university building is the is the sports ground. Um, and there's, you know, they would have had provision for boxing and they would have had the gymnasium, yeah. the PT. So for the um, dockyard workers, though, did they start to develop their own sporting culture and their own associational culture? You kind of mentioned it earlier on and about to do the theatre as well. I'm kind of interested in theatre myself. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, but, um, so how, did, how did that develop? Um, so so yeah, you have this pressure from below. Do they get concessions? Do the Royal Navy acknowledge their, their role? It took a long time, I think. Um, it was 1913 when they petitioned for a ground to play yeah. football league That's on. That's quite late, isn't it? And yeah. they established a dockyard football league in um, 1914, which actually ran until... <laughs> it was, because they, the fixtures did stop for the war, but it actually ran until um, 2014. Oh, wow. So yeah. it, was, it was really popular, but obviously it dwindled. Um, so it wasn't viable in the end because there weren't enough dockyard teams, but it was really popular. They had about, I think it was something like 12 different departments that were um, employed, actually had signed up for, for the league that yeah. were competing against each other. But prior to that, they were doing a lot of things. They, they were in FA fixtures within the city or in the town at that point. Um, so that they would be in, either they'd have a, Dockyard apprentice league, you know, team or a dockyard boilermaker team, but they would be competing against church groups or other uh, work groups, and that was done sort of on a, a very sort of ground roots football, yeah. um, FA fixtures, sort of minor league, yes, lower leagues stuff. Yeah, but then they would also they also develop their own league of their own. Uh, yeah, so eventually yeah. they did develop their own league, and what was really interesting about that as well is that um, they the navy paid for the ground to be flattened and for fences, but then they had to give money to make sure that there was uh, police presence, and so it was never given. They were never given anything for free. It right. was always a sort of quid pro quo. Yeah you'll get this but you have to make sure it's viable and that it's safe for everyone and you know basically value for money yeah um and and so yeah it's really interesting that it, they weren't given the same provisions and they had to go cap in hand keep asking for things and what was their relationship with the royal navy teams did they did they have a relationship did they play each other or did they develop separately um it's a good question the the Navy had their own 
teams and tournaments, especially where they would do things for camaraderie, yeah. um, you know, when they were on different stations. So if they were in a China station, they'd have competitions between the ships that were there. Um, and in Portsmouth, that would be the same thing. And there were military teams within the football leagues at the time, but obviously it was based on the personnel that was, you know, in port. So it, it wasn't a consistent thing, which is why I think there was um, a, a service team yeah. at leagues so that they can play each other when they were actually in the home dock. Um, so again, it, it was it was one of those things that there was a disparity, a disparity between the civilian and the the navy provisions. Yeah, yeah um, so they're sort of second class. Are they? Treated as a second-class kind of um, uh, group, or I, I would argue within the Admiralty they were, but I think as part of the the civic culture, I think they were very central and very important yeah. because these were highly skilled workers that were part of the community, and yeah. so one of the things that they did with their sport and leisure was to articulate that through what they did. So showing their conspicuous consumption and showing their culture and what their associational culture, what they were involved in, okay, yeah. was you know was very much a part of their dockyard identity. If you were a shipwright or a boilermaker, you know you were a skilled artisan. You had a bit more money than maybe a dockyard labourer yeah. had, and you could show your um, you know it was a sort of articulation of your cultural wealth. Yeah, as, one, yeah, yeah. One of those. Um, articulations that you talked about in the paper I think was the intersection between dock culture and imperial culture at this time. I mean, the Edwardian period is seen by many historians as being the kind of the, the height of imperial culture in the, in the UK or in Britain. Um, how did they uh, how did they fit into that um, flourishing of imperial culture, let's put it one way, um, in the 1900s? Yeah, I think there's um, an assumption by a lot of historians that dockyard workers were jingoistic maybe yeah. or slightly conservative because of their uh, their links with the navy um what you find with dockyard workers is that they actually use their identity as workers of the empire mm. to get more um consideration and more um provisions for their leisure because um, what you see happening in the, the local papers is that these are our workers of empire, these people are building our ships. This is the time when the naval arms race was at its height. You know, yeah. We had the, yeah. the dreadnought discussions, you know, we want eight and we won't wait. You know, these were key workers within the city. So they would use that saying, you know, we are deserving workers of empire, we deserve to have a football league. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, so, and that carries on. So. They're, they're seen as very, very respectable, and again, it was another articulation of their respectability and their. They're a very powerful group, aren't they? Because if they withdraw their labour, that's a crisis for yes. for government, isn't it? Um, um, so, so they're using the their centrality to the navy economy, I suppose, to leverage yeah. um, um, concessions. They, it was a bargaining chip. They were yeah. were loyal, dutiful workers of empire that did their job, work really hard, and you know what, we deserve to have some time off. And you can see them petitioning for bank holidays, for amateur dramatic groups, all these sort of things, just because they were imperial workers. Yeah. Um, and also, 
one of the other things they did do to justify any profits that they made, for example, for the Dockyard Football League, was that they would say, well, we're going to use all our profits and put it towards a dockyard orphanage. Okay, yeah. So again, everything was, was not for profit. It was offset by their philanthropy, which again showed their respectability. Yeah, and uh, what about women? Is this a strictly masculine environment within dockyard? Or are women also demanding representation or spaces of, uh, of leisure within, within that group? It's interesting because at this time that I particularly look at, as you run up to the First World War, the only women that really worked in the dockyard were um, naval widows in the colour loft, so they okay. would be making the flags. Oh, okay. um, there were discussions about having female draftsmen um, introduced and secretarial workers, but it's not really until the First World War that um, female leisure starts to be introduced as a, as a way of... Um, freeing a man for the fleet yeah. or such and such, you know, to, to use a Wren's term. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so well, once you get the sort of the 1916 uh, conscription, yeah. you find there's an influx of women workers into the dockyard. And one of the really interesting projects that we're working on at the moment with Portsmouth Historical Dockyard Trust is the Triangle Girls we're working. They, they've got a HLF funded project yeah. looking at the Triangle Girls and um, my colleague Professor Brad Bevan and I are working with the uh, the dockyard to have a look at these women, what they did, and we would really love it if they would uncover yeah, some yeah. of their leisure because it is unknown. You know, yeah. dockyard workers. What what were the triangle triangle girls? For? So the <laughs> triangle girls was um, the badge that they wore for military service, so okay. it, it would show that they were work on uh, war work in the dockyard. Yeah. So they were female dockyard workers. Yes, and, um, yeah. and so they were. And they get this label from the clothes that they wore. Yes, yeah, yeah. and okay. um, it was a really interesting time, obviously, because the men that were going off to war were somewhat skilled, and so there were a lot of discussions about de-skilling particular jobs and whether women should what women should get paid, and whether when men returned from war, whether or not they were worth the money and, yeah. and things like that, you know, are they, were the women undercutting what the men were, were doing? So, yeah. It, yeah, it's a really interesting project and yeah. we're, we're hoping to get some great results of really hidden histories that people yeah. haven't actually seen before. So you see potential for kind of looking at the leisure activities of these women during yes. the wartime period and potentially afterwards? I mean, were they, re were they did they continue to be employed um, after World War One, or is that not something you... You, you well, after after demobilisation, de yeah. they were um, made unemployed, and right. things went obviously to an equilibrium until the Second World War. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 and then you see the introduction of more women's work, and I think, um, yeah, some of the administrative posts were taken over by women. But again, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. It's not quite my period. Yeah. So when when you're for your paper, for example, though, um, what archives were you using for the dockyard workers? Do, is there an archive for Portsmouth Dockyard itself? Um, there were there were a few bits in um, the Portsmouth Royal Dockyard Historical Trust. Um, they've got some really lovely photo albums of right. different um, departments that would go on outings and trips. There's a brilliant photograph of W.D. Ransom, who was a very famous cyclist in the dockyard. Oh, right, and okay. He actually served in the Boer War as a cyclist. Um, and so you see these 
again, it's that articulation of respectability and their organised sport and leisure activities. Um, and that's really good. Um, and it's a collection that doesn't get a lot of prominence. It's, it doesn't really see the light of day because they don't have a like an online catalogue at the yeah. moment. So um, that that's great. And obviously one of the other places that I was accessing a lot of material was um, the Admiralty Papers. So discussions. And again, it's one of these things that's really hit and miss. You just go, oh, let's have a look at what they were corresponding about in the Portsmouth station. And then I hit the jackpot with this correspondence to do with um, appealing to get uh, football pitch and right. and then the whole back and forth of of what that meant in terms of you know sort of haggling for for what what's going to be funded and what isn't going to be funded yeah because those discussions about um, things like football pitches especially if, if people have been to Portsmouth they'll know it's very tight space isn't it so space mm -hmm. is a premium isn't it well actually um, the football pitch is in Gosport so across yeah, the water yeah yeah and so if you're asking to reserve a certain space for your own leisure activity, that's quite a big thing, isn't it? Because other people want to claim that land for their own use, don't they? And exactly, yeah. It's one of those, it's really interesting where you, where you discover those things where you think, well, it's just a football pitch, but it's not, is it? It's who's got the right to, to, to mm. do something there, isn't it? And so you've been working with the local museum here in Portsmouth, I think. Um, how how did you get involved with that? Is is that through the university? Is there a partnership between university? Yeah, and we've the got team? several projects that we've um, undertaken in partnership with museums. Um, one of the ones we we were most proud of, I think, was working with uh, the uh, the city museum, Portsmouth City Museum, on their First World War exhibition, mm. um, which was. A, a huge, I think it was something like £90,000 Heritage Lottery Fund bid that they got to stage their exhibition. And we worked, um, again, Professor Brad Bavin was um, the consultant and I worked alongside him to pick the themes and the, the narrative for the exhibition. And then we worked on the panels and the interpretation alongside mm. uh, the museum staff, picked the objects that were going to go in it and worked with community groups so that they... Um, would do research as well on the collection and then that would also go into the exhibition as well so that that was amazing that was a really wonderful project and to see you know the fruits of everyone's work yeah. within that space and representing the city in such an important time and the centenary was was really brilliant and we hope to keep that relationship going as well yeah. um another project we worked on was with the king's theater actually um and that was called theater of war again it was first world war working with their community group of volunteers to research what the King's Theatre was doing in the war. So again, you were talking about um, theatre. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Looking at the central role of what was called the People's Theatre in Portsmouth, because it was the the, mo the popular theatre. There were other theatres in Portsmouth. And that's in the South Sea, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Um, how it played a central role in things like recruitment, uh, morale, you know, how it um, staged uh, different entertainments for different military groups and things like that um, and again that was a brilliant project working with volunteers and they did an exhibition and a big gala opening and um, uh, there was a, a play that was a first world war play that was reenacted on the stage so it had probably not been seen for 
about 100 years. Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah so all those things are, are brilliant. They're a delight to work on. Yeah, so, so it sounds like you know, academic research sometimes can be very lonely, can't it? You're kind of doing lots of hours in the archives and typing stuff up. And, and then when you get to do public history like that, what, what is it, how, how does it compare? You know, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's, its strength is also its weakness right. <laughs> in public history is that, you know, working on your own, you don't have to negotiate with anyone else. Yeah. In public history, you're working alongside people and it's a very collaborative effort and it has to be collaborative because what you're doing is making something together. And if you're not consulting the public and you're not working with them, you're not bringing them on board, then there's no benefit for them and that you're not learning from them. So there's no benefit for you as well. Yeah. And so it's actually often, very often really exciting and really rewarding because you're learning from each other what they think is important, what they want to see as their public history, how they want their history to be represented. And you're seeing them grow and learn the skills of being a historian. Yeah. So that's great. And at the same time, you're synthesizing your research into something which goes out to the public for, um, for them to start to make their own connections with as well. So that's really great. Um, but again, I think, you know, sometimes working with the public, you have to be very aware that they don't want the same level of information that yeah. you do as a, as a academic researcher. And so the biggest trick for us academics is actually making sure that it's concise and bite-sized and um, accessible. And yeah. that's the biggest thing. But still the, the scholarship underpins what you exactly, do. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that you're not being, not bending too much to what the public wants. And not dumbing down as yeah, well, because yeah. I think that's one of the biggest problems is that if you treat the public like they don't know enough or they're ignorant, yeah. then again, you're doing them a disservice as well, because actually when you work with these volunteers, they're really sharp and engaged. Yeah. And so to dismiss that would be at your peril. Yeah, yeah. And you're, and you're working on something right now, I think, before we, before we started recording this, we were talking about a project that you're doing to do with p stories within Portsmouth, which is also a kind of a public-facing thing, isn't it? Can you tell us some more about that? I'm going to put an image of the poster. Oh, sure, yeah. The, uh, podcast. Um, so I, a part of my job as well is not just working with Port Towns and Urban Cultures, PTUC, yeah. but it's also working with Supernatural Cities as well, which is another uh, research hub. Yeah. Um, and that looks at folklore and superstitions in history and how we can make sense of the world, thinking about how people maybe constructed their consciousness based on belief systems and folklore and you know these sort of things all um, can tell us about a time and a place in history what people's popular beliefs were. Um, they give people a sense of identity don't they um, those stories sort of spooky stories um, tell people that your town is different or your street even is different to, to where somebody else lives isn't it is that kind of, is that yeah the kind of so thing there's a definite spatial element yeah. to um, the idea of supernatural cities um, and within that the uh, the project has something called dark fest which is um, an annual thing this is the fourth year this year um, annual celebration of 
sort of all things supernatural and dark. And part of this is the um, we have the launch of Darkside Portside, right. which is a guided walk that you do for um, an app in your phone. Um, and it was inspired by uh, an app that we'd worked on in Port Towns and Urban Cultures, which is Sailor Town Walk, the Sailor Town app, which looked at routes in Portsea and Old Portsmouth and tried to link the urban environment to its history again so people could be in the urban environment and then read about the history. So someone called John Sackett, who um, is um, a sort of cultural promoter um, of the arts in, in the area, runs something called uh, The Front Room, uh, does lots of arts and poetry. Um, he was really inspired by the Sailor Town Walk and thought that would be great to do a a walk that was inspired by the arts and by uh, you know film and how we could start to look at these histories but actually make our own contemporary interpretations of them. Yeah. So they applied to Arts Council England, very lucky got funding for this project. So the launch is actually today, which oh, is wow. 21st of October. <laughs> Unfortunately, I won't yeah. be able to edit this in time <laughs> to get it out there to help you publicise. <laughs> So yeah, the launch is today um, and it would be great to actually watch it again. It would be looking at and hearing these these new interpretations of our history in situ and I think it would be really brilliant, yeah. And you're launching an app. Uh, that that is The app is at the centre of that, isn't it? Yes, so, so yeah. it will be available through Darkfest and then I'm sure that it will be available again yeah. um, as, as something that gets rolled out in the future. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting that universities are thinking in very imaginative ways now about how they can integrate within the local community, aren't they? Especially new universities like Portsmouth, it seems to me anyway. Um, and I think it's really good because as somebody who also works in the tourism industry and um, is also interested in sort of you know guiding and things like that, it's it's uh, I, yeah I love stuff like this. <laughs> you know, any anyone who's getting the stories out there that we like to tell, and I think it's uh, it's a really good way um, to, to 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 have an impact as a as an academic historian, isn't it? That's it, and we're yeah. not having, we're not just having an impact on the mind, it's on your soles of your feet yeah. as well. <laughs> well. I love walking, Portsmouth is such an interesting place to walk around and walk this morning. It's thankfully uh, quite flat as well. Yeah, yeah, well yeah, um, also did the run yesterday and yeah, flatness was good. <laughs> but going back to the academic side of things, do you have anything kind of in the oven, <laughs> in the academic I, I oven do, that you're yes. working on? Um, so I'm, so I've been really pleased to have been, um, appointed the faculty research fellow which is apparently I'm the first one in the school oh, to wow. be appointed yeah. in in this post um, and so part of my remit is to do my own research and what I want to do is build on my PhD which was looking at the Royal Duckyard worker and their leisure and looking in Portsmouth and actually what I want to start to do is to look at them working in the imperial dockyards because okay. they would have been sent out, especially the established men that were sort of on the salary on the books yeah. of uh, of the dockyard. They would be sent out to Malta, Gibraltar, Hong Kong, Bermuda, all these places. And what I want to establish is how they fitted into those social structures and how they replicated their leisure patterns yeah. and how that they established networks and communities when they were working abroad so that's the extension of my PhD. That on sounds that. like a really great project because yeah. I'm, I'm very much interested in the development of the empire as a network and 
yeah, how practice is diffused through the empire, but also returns from from the empire to the to the centre as well, to the metropolis. Sounds fantastic. I look forward to uh, hearing but further yeah. papers. So on my that. so my next paper will be yeah. Sport and Leisure in the Imperial Dot yeah. <laughs> You're welcome to come back because it was a really good paper last year. And uh, thanks for sharing your research with me today. And if you'd like to see the details of Mel's work, I'll put a link on the web page for this podcast and in the podcast description on iTunes. If you, the listeners, uh, think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for the seminar series, we're always looking for speakers um, for the seminar. We're booked up for 29.20 now, but uh, certainly into the future. Or you might consider presenting at the Society's Conference, which next year will be in London, I think. Yeah, it is in London. Um, and you can get in touch with us uh, via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org, or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account, and if you just type in British Society of Sports History on Twitter, we'll come up, I'm sure. Um, but that's all for this episode, and so until next time, here's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>